To our new passengers, aloha and welcome. As you board, please move across your car to make room for everyone, and kindly offer available seating to those needing special assistance. The show will begin momentarily. Thank you. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. Welcome to Dave's Disney View Podcast, provided on our own version of the information highway in the sky. For those of you standing, please hold on to the handrails throughout our journey and stay clear of the doors. For the comfort of others, no smoking, please. Thank you. Dave's Disney View is a look at the Walt Disney World Resort and sometimes beyond, as seen through the eyes of Dave, a frequent visitor, a one-time cast member, and an engineer who simply enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. Now, please keep your party together and put on your virtual mouse ears. And by all means, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, on this episode, I would like to pay tribute to another one of the Disney theme parks, and this time it's Disneyland Paris. Turns out that Disneyland Paris is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year, and uh, they kicked off their anniversary celebrations with uh, two interesting people hosting the uh, celebration. It was a uh, Mexican bombshell, I guess you would call her, Selma Hayek, and uh, disgraced uh, former French soccer star uh, uh, Jadania, who had, uh, was best known for the end of a World Cup before he retired with headbutting somebody. But anyway, that's an interesting uh, mix to have for people to celebrate the 20th anniversary. What I wanted to do in this podcast is kind of go back and look at the early days of what Euro Disney looked like. And as I said, it was called Euro Disney when it first opened. Uh, They changed the name somewhere along the way. Now, this was supposed to be a partnership between the French government and uh, Disney World to be able to build a theme park somewhere in Europe that people could easily get to. What Disney discovered, there were a lot of Europeans who were traveling to the United States to come to a theme park. Um, so Walt had built Disneyland and then planned for Disney World. And then uh, Disney, the Disney company had come together with a plan to uh, work with the uh, J&B partners uh, in Japan to build uh, Disneyland Tokyo. And it worked out pretty well. That property is mostly owned by the uh, bank and uh, is actually a Japanese uh, entity. And a small percentage is owned by Disney. So that model was what Disney used to build Disneyland Paris. And it's about 60% owned by the French and about 40% owned by Disney, and it's all themed to Disney standards. So the deal was, uh, back when they first opened, that uh, there was a lot of uh, labor strife. Uh, there was a lot of issues about putting a uh, theme park in, in outside of Paris. It's about 20 miles outside of Paris. And as I recall, there were you know some small-scale riots and some different things, and people talked about it poorly, saying it was going to destroy French culture, and it was going to be like the uh, equivalent of Chernobyl in France and things of that nature. And certainly it didn't start off well when uh, Disney first started planning it. Uh, During the first year, attendance was low, and that's where my story comes in. So I'd like to kind of tell you the story about my trip to Euro Disney back in 1993. As you may know, it opened in 1992 in uh, just outside of Paris, France, and they actually built it there uh, primarily because it was within a four-hour drive of most of Europe. They had expected that there would be up to 500,000 visitors a day to the park, uh, but it, uh, they had some trouble getting there. Uh, they had 50,000 people or so on the first day, and it was uh, something like 25,000 visitors a day for the first year or so that the park was in existence. So here it was. It was early 1993, 
and I'm working for the Walt Disney Company in uh, Orlando. So I'm working at Disney World. And they came through and they offered a tremendous opportunity for anyone who wanted to go there. They were offering deep discounts on hotel rooms, and you could use your uh, cast member ID for a 35% discount on anything that you would purchase there at, uh, at Euro Disney. So that included food and merchandise and anything else uh, other than the uh, hotel rate, which was going to be, I think, 50% off the room rate, the standard room rate. And if you booked a package you know, of, of the tickets in the room and everything, they made a tremendous opportunity, a great deal for cast members. So I was looking at it, and I said, you know, this might be a fun trip. I, you know, I don't know how many times I'm going to get to go to Euro Disney, and especially at this rate. So I decided to go, and I talked a friend of mine into going with me, and we went over, and we spent about five days at Euro Disney. Now, people, of course, thought, you know, why are you going there? You work for Disney World. Why would you, why would you go to Euro Disney? And I thought, this is going to be a tremendous opportunity. And it really was a pretty good, fun time. So here it was. Uh, you know, I got this discount, and first off, it was kind of funny because I had... Um, they had these paper forms you had to fill out to get days off when you were working at the Magic Kingdom. And these paper forms were for a week's time. So it was a Sunday through a Saturday that you'd have the forms for. So if you needed to do a, a shift change or you needed to trade days or you were asking for time off, you filled out this form. So here it was. I was going um, for the five days. I think it was included a weekend, so it was like a Wednesday through a Tuesday or something. So it actually covered two weeks' worth of, uh, uh, of time. And I remember filling out the form, and I filled out two different forms because that's the way you did it. And I remember seeing my vacation schedule and going, hey, wait a minute. They only gave me the first three days off but not the last two or however many days it worked out to be. And I went and talked to the supervisor. He goes, well, I didn't realize you wanted to take you know, parts of two weeks off. I'm like, hello. And it was funny because he goes, well, next time just write it on the form that you plan to take all of it off, and I'll just you know, process it at one time. So it was a little funny thing that was happening there because it was all uh, hand-driven. Um, at the time to do all the paperwork to give you days off. So that was always kind of, you know, kind of sticks in my mind as just being one of those moments when I'm like, wait, did I ask for the days off or didn't I? He was really nice about it, and I got the days off anyway. So anyway, it, uh, it happens that uh, I go out there, and it's a, you know, it's the long flight from uh, Orlando to Paris, and uh, got off the plane in Paris, and I'm at Charles de Gaulle Airport. And uh, didn't speak much French. I'll be honest with you, I don't speak much French. I understand a little bit, but I don't speak much. My friend spoke a little bit more. And uh, we, um, we had to find the bus, first of all, to take us to Euro Disney. And, you know, of course, it's the American thing. There's some times that the French people just kind of thumb their noses at Americans. And especially if you don't try to speak their language. We made an effort. We tried to speak the language. And we finally found the right bus stop and the right bus terminal. We got on the bus. And it was a, maybe a 45-minute ride down to, uh, to, the, to the parks. And we went down and we, um, we got there and we checked into the hotel and at the time, there were, I think it was six hotels. I want to say six. We checked in the Hotel Santa Fe. That one sounded like it would be the most interesting, sort of a southwestern feel to it. We went down there and uh, were able to get into the hotel. Now, we're there for approximately five days. Now, I don't know how much you know about Euro Disney when it first opened. Most people would argue that it's really a one-day see-it-all park. Maybe you go for a second day. But here we were there for five. There really wasn't a second park at the time. The studios had not opened yet. They hadn't uh, finalized the, the plans for that. Not all the attractions were open. And uh, there wasn't really a whole lot to do outside of going to the parks. So we made the best of it. We had a really good time just kind of going through the parks, having some fun, kind of enjoying ourselves, just uh, tooling around and seeing some different things. Now, we did have a discussion at one point about whether we should go to Paris for a day and just take like a day trip up to the City of Lights and have some fun. Um, but we decided ultimately not to. I think um, my friend was a little shy about going into a city that was unfamiliar, so we decided to just stay and uh, stay at Euro Disney and just kind of hang around there. 
So we wound up doing some hotel hopping and just checking out the various hotels. And occupancy was unbelievably low. It was amazing to me just how low occupancy was. Uh, you know, we wound up, I think, changing hotels at one point for a night just to check out a different hotel. And we got, you know, we got an even better rate at the hotel for the last night. And it was really pretty amazing. But at the time, there were, I think, six hotels. So you had the Disneyland Hotel, which was this opulent place, very much like the Disneyland Hotel in California, um, and kind of had that feel of a grand hotel, you know, kind of, kind of like you walk into the Grand Floridian in Walt Disney World and has a certain opulence to it and a certain feeling to it. It was kind of like that. It uh, has the style of a Victorian mansion. Um, and the, what the biggest thing is they like to offer this high-quality service. Then there was the uh, Hotel New York, which was kind of themed after uh, a New York skyline sort of thing. Uh, it was kind of a neat little hotel, you know, kind of interesting in the sense that it had this certain hustle and bustle feeling of New York City. Uh, they had uh, skyscrapers and unique decor around to kind of give you the feeling like you were in New York, sort of. Then you had the Newport Bay Club, which was a nautical, it was a sort of a nautical style hotel, very much like sort of the beach club, uh, the Yacht and Beach Club over at uh, Disney World, sort of that laid back feel about it and that, that sort of thing. It was modeled after um, something like Newport, Rhode Island, something like a, a resort town like that, where you have sort of the uh, sort of that feel of a, of a resort town in the Northeast. Kind of neat, very, very pleasant, nice hotel, fun to walk around in. You had the Sequoia Lodge, uh, which was uh, one of these um, nature-driven exhibits. So it had this, uh, this sort of natural thing to it, a lot of trees around it. Uh, you felt like you were sort of in the Pacific Northwest. The whole thing about Disneyland Paris or Euro Disney was that they were trying to emulate what it was like in the United States and various parts of the United States. And I think they kind of captured the essence of it in some way. And the next up, it was the uh, Hotel Santa Fe, where we were staying. And uh, this was kind of a fun hotel. It was a Me southwestern Mexican sort of feel to it. Uh, they made it look like the painted desert in a way and had everything in the adobe style. So you had these little hotels, uh, these little rooms uh, that were kind of set apart. And it was kind of fun to be able to, uh, to walk around the property a little bit. They had a crashed spaceship in one place. You know, they kind of captured the imagination of being the old southwest. And then finally is the Hotel Cheyenne. Now, I don't, I don't know about this. I can't put my finger on what it is exactly. But there's a fascination that the French have in particular with the Old West in the United States. And so the Hotel Cheyenne kind of captured that. It was sort of the, uh, supposed to be like the old town, the old mining town or the old uh, you know, one-horse town in the Old West. And so they had the, like the saloon look to it. You know, you think about the, uh, the towns you see in the Old West where it was you know, sort of one road and you had these hotels and different things along there. Um, and you kind of walk in and just had that sort of feel to it. You know, you were kind of staying in a, in a, in a ranch or something. And it was kind of neat in that way. I thought that was kind of an intriguing thing to, uh, to look at. So I'm just amazed at uh, the way the French kind of look at the Old West with a certain wide-eyed wonder. And it's kind of interesting because here was this uh, one-horse town that you could walk through and kind of felt like that. And I remember walking along and kind of thinking, you know, I feel like I'm in the Old West in some way. So that was, uh, that was really it. Now, as I said, the park itself was really a two-day park, you know, so you had the ability to go in and, and see the park and see most of it in a day and go back and see it a second day, but we were there for five. So we spent more time kind of eating in restaurants and tooling around and going in and out of each of the shops. And the other thing we got to do a lot of was uh, sit in the hotel and watch TV. Well, you know, most of the TV's in French. Uh, they had a few channels that were in English. Um, but one of the things we watched a lot was The Little Mermaid in French. 
So every once in a while, I'll pop in the DVD of The Little Mermaid at home, and I'll switch to the French soundtrack, and I'll feel like I'm back in that hotel uh, watching the old uh, the old movie. It was it was kind of funny, you know. Just that that memory for me is very strong, and I think back to uh, sitting there and watching that movie while I was laying in the ho- laying in the bed in the hotel and just watching The Little Mermaid in French. Another thing about the hotel that we were staying in, we were on the first floor, and they had these giant windows. And I remember opening the window and climbing up the window to go out of the room. It was just one of those odd things because you can't – most of the hotels in the United States, you don't have anything like that. But uh, it was really, really pretty funny. I was able to walk out the the, uh, first-story window and go out into the the parks. Anyway, now the hotels themselves were arranged around a lake. Uh, So as you walked around the lake, you could go to each of the hotels. The lake itself was shaped like the state of Florida. I found that to be personally amusing. It was a nice little Disney touch uh, that you may not notice unless you were really looking at it. But uh, they were laid out like the state of Florida. So you'd walk along, and you could uh, check out each of the hotels. And there was a pathway that led from the hotel area down through a downtown Disney-like area uh, and over to the, uh, the main entrance to the theme park. So we'd uh, go through the uh, downtown area and uh, check out some of the things. There were a couple of shops and restaurants, and at night it was a little bit of fun to just kind of tool around a little bit, kind of hear some of the live music and different things that were going on. But uh, primarily, like I said, we spent a lot of time eating in restaurants and stuff, just checking it out. Hey, the 35% discount um, with the exchange rate the way it was was a pretty good deal at the time. So the park was laid out, and what I remember about it, uh, as you walked in, one of the things that I noticed right away you know, we were there in uh, May, I guess, and the weather was a little bit cooler. And I understand that uh, France gets a little rainy at times. So uh, a lot of the areas between the shops and the arcades are covered. So unlike in Walt Disney World, where you kind of walk between things and things are uh, open, here they were covered. It was like a you know plexiglass cover over a lot of stuff. So as you walked along, you didn't feel like you were going to get uh, rained on or snowed on as you went along. So that was kind of neat. And it was, it was kind of interesting. You walk in the park... My first thought was, oh, my God, I'm at Disney World. You have that feel. I mean, they really did recreate the feeling that you're at a Disney park. I mean, everything looked so familiar from Main Street as you walked along to the uh, center square to even the castle, the way it was laid out, uh, even though the castle was completely different. It was really pretty um, familiar. Now, I'll admit, I don't remember everything about the parks. I mean, we went on, we went through every attraction and we had some fun. But I don't remember everything. I mean, this is, you know, it's been almost 20 years now since uh, we went there. But I do remember some very specific things, and I'd like to kind of share those with you. One of the cool things was that it was Princess Aurora's castle, so Sleeping Beauty. And inside the castle, and in this case, you could go inside the castle. This is the first park I'd ever been to where you could go into the castle and really kind of enjoy it. They set the castle up on a hill, and you could go inside, and they had all these tapestries and different things, and they were telling the story of the Sleeping Beauty. And you could go in and you could kind of check it all out. And I thought that was really pretty neat because you really kind of got a feel for what it was what it was like to be inside the castle. They kind of represented it well. And then down underneath, they had a dragon. And the dragon was kind of sleeping in a lair, and you could hear him sleeping. And every once in a while, he'd raise his head. Um, he was an animatronic dragon. And he'd turn and he'd look at you and he'd snort out a little bit of uh, smoke from his uh, snout. And it was really pretty clever. I thought that was one of the more amazing things I'd ever seen because it really took, uh, took the imagination to a new level and something that you didn't see in any of the other parks at that point. One of the other things I remember very well, walking over into Frontierland. As I said, there's a certain fascination with the French and the Old West. And it was really pretty interesting. They had little shows they were doing. And you know, it was, it was the uh, French people or you know, French-speaking people doing a show. 
that related to the Old West. And it was really kind of, I don't know, it was kind of cute in its own way. I wasn't sure what to make of it at the time, but it really was kind of a clever little experience. And it was kind of neat to see them doing this, uh, this Old West show and kind of getting a feel for, uh, for the Old West. The uh, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad there is a little bit different. It's actually set off away from the park. You have to go uh, kind of under the river. So they have the, the equivalent of the Rivers of America. And you go underneath to uh, be able to get to Big Thunder Mountain. So it's kind of neat. You, you actually uh, get in the queue outside by the Rivers of America, and you go underneath, go up into the mountain, and then the, the train car takes you up into the mountain and around, and you splash down kind of under where the water line is, and then you get out and you come out. It was really pretty neat. I remember, you know, thinking that was really cool the way they laid that out and really kind of enjoyed the, uh, the kind of the look of that. The other thing I remember, being over by the uh, Pirates of the uh, Caribbean, they had a, a pirate-themed island over there. And it was really pretty neat. It was like Skull Island, and you could go over, and it kind of had the theme of Peter Pan and uh, Captain Hook, and could go over and check it out. And it was really pretty clever the way they laid it out. You could kind of just hang out. It was a kid's play area and some different things over there. And I remember uh, having some fun just kind of walking along through there and really kind of uh, enjoying what it, what it was and how it was laid out. It was, it was pretty clever. Over in Fantasyland, one of the cool things that they had there was a, uh, a hedge maze, and it was uh, based on Alice in Wonderland. And you could go into the maze and you could kind of wander your way around, and if you really spent the time to explore, you could experience a lot of this, the storyline from Alice in Wonderland. The Cheshire Cat showed up there. There was the tea party, and uh, you knew the Mad Hatter had been there recently. So you could kind of check that out. And it was kind of fun to wander around and just kind of wander through that area a couple of times. That was, that was kind of a, a fun way to just spend a little time and play a little hide-and-seek and just have a little fun. You know, as I said, the parks weren't that crowded, so it was kind of fun to just uh, tool around and look at different things. Uh, there was a uh, – the Nautilus was on display there from uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now, of course, Jules Verne was actually uh, French uh, by descent, so uh, the, uh, the Nautilus is kind of an important you know, historical piece as far as uh, Jules Verne's writings. So they had the Nautilus on display there, and you could walk through it, and that was pretty cool because you got to see a representation of the engine room, and you got to see the big screen, and you got to see some different things. It was almost as if the Nautilus was ready to launch at any moment and go off. And that was kind of fun. I mean, I remember going through that and just thinking, this is very clever that they've set this out here. At the time, the 20,000 Leagues ride still existed at the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World. So this was kind of a, you know, an extension of that to a large degree. You know, you'd get on the boat, you'd ride along with the storyline at Walt Disney World, but here you could actually kind of experience more of what the, uh, the Nautilus was all about. Um, so that was, that was really pretty clever the way they had set that up. I thought that was, that was neat, and I really enjoyed seeing that. I was glad I got a chance to see it. Now, I do remember that Captain EO was playing there at the time, too, so I got a chance to see Captain EO while I was there. Uh, you know, it was still having its run at Epcot, and uh, here it was. It was playing there, and that was kind of neat to see, you know, same show, uh, just a different environment. Uh, so that was, uh, that was pretty slick. And then there were the two big attractions, and these were the ones that we went into probably, you know, 10 or 12 times. I mean, well, maybe not that much, but they were, uh, they were pretty cool. And the first one is the Phantom Manor. And the Phantom Manor is based on the storyline that is the Haunted Mansion at Walt Disney World or Disneyland. This was actually a much more compelling story. In this case, the uh, Phantom Manor is set, set over by Frontierland, and it's supposed to be like an old uh, southern plantation kind of, kind of area. And it really was pretty neat. I mean, we went in. First of all, Vincent Price is doing the narration when you first walk in. Then they have a woman who's doing the same storyline in French. And the combination of the two really gave you that creepy sort of vibe. Like, this was really going to be something different. 
And so you'd go in, and uh, you'd hear that part of the story. Then you'd, uh, you'd actually go through some of the load area and see some of the exhibits that they had out. And it was just, it had a certain macabre nature to it. It was a little more intense than, say, the Disney World version, where Disney World's version is a little more fun. This was a little more real, you know, just a little bit more creepy. So you went in and you actually joined the ride, and you go along on the ride. And I'll tell you, today, even today when I listen to the ride on my iPod and I have the ride audio, I'm always like, wow, I'm taken back because it was just so intense. I mean, it had a certain great Disney imagination thing going on there where they took you through the storyline of what happened. You know, it's supposed to be like uh, this, uh, this, uh, these people were living in a mining town, and the mining town went, went bust, and, you know, all these people, you know, you go down into this, uh, this, this graveyard where it's all these old miners and everything, and it's very clever and very well thought out. And then, of course, you've got the, uh, the storyline of the brides and, you know, being left at the altar and those, those types of things, and it really was totally creepy. And I love the line in the story where the, the um, woman is telling it, and then she repeats it in English. And it, it's just really neat. The ravishing bride, the vanishing groom. Just remarkable. Um, I love the storyline. I love the way she tells it. It's just really cool. So Phantom Manor was really something that was worth seeing and absolutely um, unusual and different and uh, really pretty remarkable. And the other one, of course, is the Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, you know, if you know the story of Walt's uh, history with the Pirates of the Caribbean, he had this great idea for creating a pirate's ride with some unused land that he had at uh, Disneyland. So he came up with this idea for the Pirates of the Caribbean, and they came, through this, came up with this really great concept of having a ride through attraction. Originally, it was going to be sort of a wax museum of uh, storytelling related to the Pirates' adventures. Now, the, the Pirates' adventures that you read about and you hear about, you know, they really aren't any great stories to tell. I mean, these were guys who were, who were, who were merchant marines or people who wanted to, uh, to have some success. Some of them had been former Navy people. Some of them had decided to be sort of on their own. And they were trying to, uh, what they were trying to do was kind of change the nature of the way the business worked. I mean, there were several uh, independent companies or, or state-run companies that were doing all the trading and doing everything. And these guys came along and they were trying to um, upend this. And partly uh, for profit, profiteer reasons, partly for uh, freedom reasons, partly for their own reasons. But you know, these guys really had a, had a means to an end of, of being pirates on the high seas. And the stories you hear folklorically, really not, a lot of them weren't as interesting as they sound in the folklore. Uh, so Disney decided that you know, ha- telling the pirates' adventure story wasn't going to be quite what he was looking for. So they decided on this ride-through attraction instead where they, uh, they were going to have people kind of go through and view different pirate vignettes as they went through and kind of hear the story of different pirates. And it would be a little more interesting than a static exhibit. So the idea of the Pirates of the Caribbean was born. It took many years to come to fruition, and they finally got it. And they have a pretty successful ride at Disneyland. They improved on it slightly at Disney World, uh, where they came up with some ideas that uh, kind of took it to a a slightly different level. And by the time they got to uh, Euro Disney, they had come up with something even more clever. They had a lot more ability and space to be able to build in these dreams and ideas. So they really told a grand story of these pirates who were marauding in the high seas. So they've got some really clever uh, things happening where uh, you're, shot, you're shot out because a cannon uh, breaks out a wall and you go down a waterfall as a result of the, uh, the water rushing out. And you go through and you're, you're kind of riding along with the pirates as you, as you escape. And there's pirates that kind of, uh, I remember a pirate coming over my head or near my head who was like on a rope. 
swung over and there's cannonballs being fired and different things happening. And you kind of go along through these different uh, images and visages as you kind of look at the pirates' lives and what they're doing. And, of course, you hear the familiar song and you hear different pieces of it uh, as you go through. And there's pirates uh, in, their, you know, in their bunks and pirates uh, who have died in different ways. And, uh, there's a, again, there's a little bit more of a macabre nature to some of it because the death scenes are a little more graphic than you see in the United States. But they're very well thought out. And it's a really clever representation of the pirates. And it kind of goes deeper in the story than what you see at Disney World. And I really, really appreciated what it was all about. And one of the cool things that I really liked about this particular attraction was there's a restaurant that overlooks the, uh, um, the I guess it's the beginning of the ride, so where the load area is. So we went over and we ate at that restaurant a couple of times because it was kind of fun to sit in there. It's kind of like the Blue Bayou restaurant at uh, Disneyland where you're sitting and you're watching the pirates ride and you're enjoying some, uh, uh, some of the ambiance of the ride. And that was really pretty cool. And I uh, really enjoyed kind of just sitting there and taking it all in. I mean, for whatever reason, that one sticks in my mind as like one of the really neat places that we spent some time and ate and kind of hung out. It was just very cool the way it was laid out. So we did a little souvenir hunting, uh, went around and picked up some different things that are sort of little artifacts from the, uh, from the first year of Euro Disney. So we made a point of riding on everything there was there. I mean, I think we rode on everything that was open at the time. There were a lot of things that hadn't opened. Now, I'm not a rider of Space Mountain, and I don't recall if it was open. I think it had just opened when we got there, so my friend rode it, and I waited at the exit. But I remember that, you know, I remember the, the specter of the building looking very much like the one at Walt Disney World, but yet had some unique twists to it. And I remember the music as you were going in and hearing the music because it's a little different than uh, Walt Disney World's version. I remember there was a uh, Peter Pan ride, and it was a little bit different than the one at Disney World, and there was also a um, Pinocchio ride, which is something that you don't see. Made a point of just trying to check out every little ride and exhibit. The Indiana Jones ride hadn't opened yet, but I remember them working on it. I remember seeing it and thinking, wow, that would be kind of cool. And uh, it, as I understand it, it is pretty cool. We made sure to ride the, uh, all the vehicles they have on Main Street because they had a double-decker bus and some older uh, cars that they drove up and down Main Street. And, of course, rode on the horse-drawn carriage uh, up and down Main Street uh, just to make sure we had the full experience. I mean, if you're going to be there for a long time, you might as well uh, just take everything in. And I have to say that, on the whole, my trip was great. We had a really fun time. I mean, five days was probably a little long to spend there, but if you're going to fly to Europe, you might as well spend a week, right? So it was a little long to spend. Uh, I remember the coach trip uh, sitting in a middle seat was kind of tough, but, you know, it was fine. We had a really good time. I remember it fondly. I remember some distinct images that I can see in my head when I close my eyes and think about it. It really was kind of unique. Something else, a couple of observations I noticed. Um, the desserts that they had in most of the uh, restaurants were pretty nicely laid out. I mean, they were well thought out and they were you know, nicely decorated, so they had a certain feel to them. They, they looked beautiful on the plate. And what we saw was a lot of people that were tourists there were actually taking pictures of their desserts. And I've never seen that before, and it was really kind of interesting to me. Um, so I took some pictures of my desserts as well, uh, just because. But it was really kind of interesting to see that, uh, see that happening. And then the other thing was uh, this whole idea of queuing. Now, I'm not trying to put this on the French people. I'm, trying to, I'm just trying to say the European mindset as opposed to the American mindset. The American mindset, and even the British, and I think it comes from the British primarily, is that you know, when there's a queue, you get in the queue, and you wait, and you wait your turn, and you get there. The more European mindset is, hey, I'm just going to go up there and take my turn. That's all there is to it. So, you know, you go into a certain queue, and it would crisscross and double back. And a lot of times you'd see a bunch of 
younger Europeans just going along and just kind of bypassing the line and just going wherever they wanted, right? Just like, yeah, that's not for me. And it was really interesting to see that. Uh, it's, it was just a very different experience. And it took a little time to overcome that. I had a cousin of mine who worked at uh, Euro Disney for a couple of years. She spoke French, and one of the key things that they were looking for was people who spoke French to work there. Uh, you could speak another language as well. They preferred it if you spoke multiple languages, but French you kind of had to speak because you were in France. And she worked there for um, a couple of years from like maybe 94 to 96-ish. And one of the things she told me was it took a while to kind of overcome that, to kind of get people over to you know the mindset of, you know, wait in the line, uh, wait your turn and kind of get there. And again, no, I don't mean this toward any one person or any one group. This It was just an observation I was making. And she was kind of expressing the same thing, that it took a little while to kind of get there and get people to adjust to the uh, to the mindset. And that was kind of interesting. I mean, you know, it, it really it really was a, a big shift in philosophy for Disney to open a property like that in uh, Paris or outside of Paris and be able to be able to have some success. And people weren't ready for it. You know, they thought about going on vacation to Disney World. They didn't think about going to a, a Disney park outside of Paris. It really was a, a big shift. And of course, in the European mindset in the early 1990s, and I think that's kind of faded a lot. You know, people didn't want to go to France to go to to go to a theme park. So if you lived in Germany or you lived in Spain or you lived in, you know, uh, the Netherlands, you didn't want to go to France to be able to go to Disney. You wanted to go to the United States to go to Disney. Yes, it's a much shorter trip, but, you you know, if you wanted to go to Disney, you were going to go to the United States. And that's changed over time. And that's as opposed to um, building a uh, Tokyo Disneyland that had remarkable success right out of the gate. The people in Tokyo just love, people in Japan just love Disney. And they love being able to go to a park that's close to home and being able to go and really experience it and kind of live it without having to go to the United States to be able to do it. So different mindset from the people that, that lived in, in Europe. But I think that's softened over time. And I think now that they're starting to get more people coming in, I think you're starting to see that it's, it's changed. You know, everything's shifted. It just took a while to get that uh, up and running and get people into the, the concept of doing it. You know, now their numbers are great. You know, the number of people that come to the parks, uh, the people that experience it, and really kind of taking it in and really experiencing what it's all about. You know, again, the attention to detail, the things that they put into the park, the number of different attractions that they had, and kind of the, the thought process that went into it. Taking the Phantom Manor and making it so much more than what you had at uh, the Haunted Mansion at Disney World and really making something much more interesting really was compelling. And I, I really do appreciate all the attention that they put into it. And I'll always fondly remember my trip to uh, Euro Disney and how that worked out. Uh, would I go back? Sure. If I had an opportunity, I might go back. Now, one of the things I was, uh, when I was researching a little bit more about the parks and trying to remember some things, someone pointed out that in the 1993 Euro Disneyland Guest Guidebook, they had this very elaborately stapled together guidebook that you would pick up uh, as you were walking under the uh, Main Street Station. And it was, it was lavish in its, in its approach, and uh, inter- it introduced every land and every aspect of Euro Disneyland. It really explained it to you. If you weren't familiar with the Disney concept or really weren't sure what this was all about, it really did kind of lay it out. It talked about the attractions, the boutiques, the shops, everything, the restaurants. It talked about all of them and what was there. It was, it was really pretty slick, and um, I don't know what I did with my copy of it, but you can find a copy online, and it's really... And then one other thing that we did while we were there was Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show. And this was kind of another thing where, again, it's very (laughs) into the whole, you know, uh, Western aspect of the United States. 
And it was a Wild West show that was, uh, they brought out horses and bulls and cows and cattle and all kinds of different things. And they just did a Wild West show where they were, you know, they were kind of working with each other. You know, all these cowboys were working together. I think they even had a little uh, interaction with Indians along the way where they felt like, you know, you felt like they were uh, battling with each other in some way. You know, it had that whole feel of the old Wild West. And it was really pretty clever. I mean, I enjoyed the show. You know, if you've ever been to any of the dinner shows in Orlando uh, where you go to the, uh, the Medieval Times or the Pirate's Adventure, Think about that sort of a show where you're in a crowd and you're, you're expected to root for this group or that person. And, you know, you're in there and you're having dinner and you're just kind of having fun and watching the show. It was, it was kind of fun. I mean, it was a really entertaining time. It was like going to one of those shows in Orlando where you just kind of sit there and you watch the show unfold in front of you on a big stage. And uh, with all the live cattle and everything, it was really pretty neat. And they gave us cowboy hats with colors on it. And they said, okay, you're Team Red. You're going to root for the red guys, you know, whatever. And they'd have different little uh, things that they were doing, you know, who, who could ride the fastest back and forth around the arena in and out of a couple of uh, gates or whatever. You know, those types of things where it was kind of fun to be able to watch them uh, do, the, do the show and have the, uh, have the different things happening. What did they say? It was called a, a nightly stampede of entertainment. It was a it was a pretty fun show. I mean, that's one of those things that I, I just remember doing and just kind of saying, yeah, it was kind of fun. You know, something really different. Uh, you know, unless you went to the uh, dinner shows in Orlando, you really don't see that anywhere. So that was uh, that was pretty fun, and it was just this this giant stage of different things happening. Well, I hope I've given you a taste of what my trip to Euro Disneyland was like back in 1993. Very different and sort of unique approach to it. Um, just had a good time. Took advantage of the discount. You know, I don't know if I would have gone otherwise had they not offered me the discount. I might not have, uh, but it was, it was just such a great opportunity. I didn't want to miss out on it, um, and it really was a lot of fun. And that is my podcast for this week. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. That's all for now. Bye now. From all of us, thanks for taking a listen to the podcast today. If you're standing, please hold on to the handrails and stay clear of the doors until the show stops completely and the doors open. Ladies and gentlemen, please collect your personal belongings, watch your head and step, and take small children by the hand. As this concludes our journey, we hope that you enjoyed the show and that you drive home safely. Our thanks go to Doug at geekacres.net for his contributions to the show, and also to Craig for the original music you hear on the show. You can find Craig's music over at ReverbNation.com slash sound a if you have questions comments or thoughts about the show please feel free to contact dave at dave's disneyview at gmail.com show notes and links to other great content on the web can be found at disneypodcast.net now i will raise the safety bar and a podcaster will follow you home Ha 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 ha